I just came from Lisa's bedroom. You and everybody else. Angelo, our daughter is disgraced before the eyes of God. You have to find Oscar. Oscar's been scratched. He jumped the country. But the baby needs a father. The baby's got a father. What we need is a husband. A husband, a husband. Where will we find a husband? No, look at us. We already married. See, we married real good. I got them bambinos. You got eight. You know, got them bambinos. I got them bambinos. Oh. I, I got Ooh. Anna Maria. I See? got uh, Salvatore. See? I got Fabrizio. I got Antonio. I got Mario. See? I got Big Luigi. See? I got Little Luigi. See? I got Luigi Junior. I got Giuseppe. And I got Figaro. Figaro, no use. Figaro come from the milkman. <laughs> I make a joke. Did I ask for the Fenucci roll call? Scusi. <laughs> Welcome to Out of Touchstone. My name is Mike Tecalba. I'm your host. And on the other end of the Skype line is my co-host, Chad Smart. Chad, how are you doing today? I am doing wonderful. You know, we are at the end of another year here in Touchstone. Uh, you know, looking ahead at the next year, 1992, a year very fond to, to my heart. It's the year I graduated high school. So I love being reminded that I'm getting old. <laughs> well, that's the whole point of this podcast is seeing all these movies that make us feel nostalgic about our youth. Yeah. And 1991 was it was it was an OK year for Touchstone. I think they've had better years in uh, in the past, but they put out 10 movies this year. I found I saw that they only made collectively about three hundred million dollars. And um, Disney themselves put out six films that year and made more than 300. So like Touchstone not as many, but still some charming movies along the way. And so we're going to discuss all of those and also hand out our Ronnie Awards for our favorite performances. Uh, we'll just get started with a, just a quick little rundown of the, the 10 films that Touchstone released in 1991. Uh, we'll go in order of how they did, how successful they were at the box office. The first film is Father of the Bride, which made $89.3 million, and it finished ninth at the year in box office. Interestingly enough, I saw that in 1990, Touchstone also had the number nine movie at the box office, which was Dick Tracy. That made $103 million. So $14 million less still gets you in the top 10. So I think 1991 was a down year at the box office from what I've saw. Uh, the next one was What About Bob, which was 19th at the box office. That made $63.7 million. The Doctor was 33rd, and that made $38.1 million. Deceived, a thriller with Goldie Hawn, it earned $28.7 million to earn 47th place. Oscar with Sylvester Stallone, it made $23.6 million and finished 57th place. Paradise was 67th place with $18.6 million. Billy Bathgate was 72nd place with $15.6 million. Ernest Scared Stupid, the final Ernest film for Touchstone. It only earned $14.1 million, which is good enough for 85th place. Scenes from a Mall made $9.6 million to finish in 97th place. And last, and certainly least, although I did enjoy the film, True Identity. True Identity only made $4.7 million and finished in 124th place. Again, $306 million for ten, 10 films. In the nine of the 10 films finished in the top 100, but it still, it still was down from previous years. I looked at the last three years we did the Ronnie Awards, and $30.6 million per film was the lowest of any of them. 
Meanwhile, like I said, Walt Disney Pictures also had put out some movies of their own. They had five films this year and also a re-release of a classic title. They, they released Beauty and the Beast, of course. That finished third at the box office with $145.9 million. The re-release of 101 Dalmatians, Chad, I don't know if you saw this, it finished 20th at the box <laughs> office with $60.8 million. Then we have The Rocketeer, which, if you remember, that was a touchstone, originally developed as a touchstone film, but then Disney was the one who released it. It made $46.7 million, good enough for 27th place. Uh, White Fang finished in 38th place with $34.8 million. Shipwrecked was 76th place with $15.1 million. And then their weakest film of the year was Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken, which only made $7.3 million, good enough for 110th place. And then there is one other studio, which just started up in 1990. That's Hollywood Pictures. They only made two films in 1990, but 1991, they had a whopping four films. Unfortunately, all four of them bombed. I've been reading a lot of books on Disney recently, and they mentioned how the, the early slate of Hollywood pictures did not, were not very well received, unfortunately. So the four films they put out in 1991 were The Marrying Man, One Good Cop, V.I. Warshawski, and Run. All of them finished 88th or lower at the box office, and none of them made more than $12.5 million. So, yeah, not, not a strong year, but I know they're going to they're gonna wrap up and make a lot more films in the future, which is something we'll talk about as our episode goes along. Chad, any observations for there, or do you want to get to uh, the top ten movies of the box office from 1991? Um, you know, I... Because I've seen the future, and I know <laughs> what's coming next year, I I think these the early 90s are an interesting time for Disney, and it, it's, it's kind of staggering how... You know, the, the peaks are really high, and the valleys are really low. And mm-hmm. and Disney is, is it's in a weird place because, again, their peaks are high, but their valleys are low. And yeah, they're, they're taking chances on, yeah. on on up and coming films. But like I said, it's nice that I was reading how Beauty and the Beast kind of saved them that year. Mm-hmm. And it's and I think that goes back to what we talked about when we first launched this podcast. As I said I wanted to kind of compare what Touchstone was doing with Disney and why Touchstone was created. It was a chance for them to take a chance on, on these other movies. And now, as we're going to see going into 1992, Disney realizes, oh, you know what? We can do pretty well with our own movies. And then we have Touchstone as our, you know, live action adult division. But we, we can we can start ramping up production of Disney films themselves in addition to the Touchstone films. Yeah, and it's, I mean, that's, it's an interesting time and, and like just looking at the, the different divisions of the studio it, it I, I will give disney credit they didn't just stick to one type of film you know they yeah you could have done you know the disney under the disney banner all g and pg rated family films and then under say touchstone just do like the pg-13 type uh family film and then you know, use Hollywood just strictly as an R-rated vehicle, but they're they're kind of all over the place with every studio. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, as the classic TV theme song states, you take the good and you take the bad. <laughs> 
Absolutely, absolutely. All right, Chad, go ahead. Hit me with the top 10 movies at the box office from 1991. All right, Mike, the top 10 for the year ending, 1991. These are in-year releases, so if you're fact-checking at home, don't go by the, just the box office. We're looking at only movies released in 1991. Number 10, The Naked Gun, two and a half, The Smell of Fear. Wow. Made $86 million. That was a top 10 movie, huh? Yeah. Wow, okay. <laughs> By the time we got to Naked Gun 57, we're just not even in the in the same year. But uh, number nine, as you mentioned, is Father of the Bride with $89 million. Sleeping with the Enemy comes in at number eight. Julia Roberts, is it the follow-up or did Dying Young come out in between this and Pretty Woman? I, they run that same time, I think. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, this is Julia Roberts. I kept capitalizing off the pretty woman success and, and becoming a, a main Hollywood starlet. Uh, Sleeping with the enemy comes in number eight with $101 million. Number seven, it was kooky. It was creepy. I'm trying to remember all the adjectives from the theme song, but the Adams family earned $113 million. Mm. Number six, the boy who wouldn't grow up, but did grow up to uh, face his adversary hook made 119 million dollars all right mike while i say this one i need you to get down and do a couple of one-arm push-ups for me because coming in at number five is city slickers with 124 million dollars i saw that movie in the theater and (laughs) i thought it was so funny i I actually have it on blu-ray i bought it as part of like a, a set i'm curious if i watch it again and see if it holds up but i remember really enjoying it yeah. Uh, number four, I don't think we can talk. Well, let me rephrase it. I have to say it this way. Coming in at number four is The Silence of the Lambs. It made $130 million, which, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and we'll get to it later, but it swept the Oscars. And and I'll mm-hmm. ask you, is that a horror film or a thriller? Thriller. I would say thriller. No, thriller. Okay. Yeah. Uh, number three. Disney's biggest hit of 1991 is Beauty and the Beast, $145 million. The highest grossing animated film of all time at that point. Yeah. And the first to be nominated for Best Picture. Yes. Uh, Number two, the classic swashbuckling hero, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, made $165 million. Oh, wow. And then blowing the competition away with $204 million to take the crown for 1991. He told you he'd be back. It's Arnold Schwarzenegger in Termin- Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Chad, how many times did you see Terminator 2 in a theater? Uh, zero. Really? Yeah, I didn't see it until it came out on video. Oh, wow. I Like I said, we had to go to the drive-in to see it because there was only a couple theaters in Hawaii that were playing. And, and it was crazy. And I, we went the opening weekend and we had to go see a midnight show because the early shows were sold out. And then... And then I saw it again with some friends who didn't see it. That we went back to the drive-in, and I actually saw it about maybe five or six years ago in a double feature with Star Trek: First Contact. It was all about time travel movies. So I've seen it in the theater technically three, three different times. Yeah, but I remember that was the summer. Oh man, that was the summer of uh, Terminator, wasn't it? You couldn't get away from that. Yeah, and you know, I think even at that point, I had not seen the original Terminator in. Well, actually, I will. <laughs> Confession type, I had not seen Terminator in its entirety until a few years ago when we saw a screening at the, as oft mentioned here on the podcast, Arrow Theater in beautiful downtown Santa Monica. 
Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we watched them. Re- I watched them recently. My wife had never seen them. She likes science fiction. She's not a big fan of, like, of violent action movies, but she wanted to see the science fiction angle of it. And so we watched the first three, matter of fact. And specifically, we watched part two because there's some scenes that take place at the mall in Northridge. And we were going to the, to the Northridge area the following day. And so I wanted to see if we could recognize the area. You can kind of see some of it, but it's really faint. I think a lot of the scenes take place in the mall in Santa Monica, which was since been renovated and remodeled. It doesn't even look like it did, but uh, terminated. So, uh, well, you alluded to uh, Sansa Lamb sleeping, sweeping through the Oscars, but I would like to, I always like to point out the Oscar nominations that we have for touchstone films each year. And I don't remember if you realize this, Chad, but in 1991, not a single Oscar nomination for any film released by touchstone. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Are you telling me, Classics like Ernest Scared Stupid did not get a single Oscar nomination. No, sadly, no. And then I think only Oscar got nominated for any Razzies, but still no Oscar nominations. I did see that that, you know, to their credit, Touchstone's been around since 1984. Only one time did they go a year without an Oscar nomination. And that was 1985 when. Touchstone only put out two movies, Baby, The Secret of the Lost Legend, and My Science Project. Although I think Fisher Stevens should have gotten a Best Supporting Actress, a Back Actor nomination, but that's just me. Well, I think William Catt and Sean Young should have at least gotten a pre-MTV Award nomination for Best Couple. Ah, and now why wasn't why didn't Baby get any kind of special effects? Come on, there was like a little <laughs> midget inside that uh, that dinosaur. T- but. Yeah. Yeah, but so go ahead, Chad. I'll have I would like to have you give us the rundown of who did win the Oscars in 1991. Well, I kind of spoiled it earlier, but here you go. For best supporting actress, it was Mercedes Rule in The Fisher King, which anybody who saw License to Drive already knows that Mercedes rules. <laughs> best supporting actor doing those one-handed push-ups is Jack Palance for City Slickers. Your best actress and. This is going to get repetitive here. Best Actress, Jodie Foster, Silence of the Lambs. Best Actor, Anthony Hopkins, Silence of the Lambs. Best Director, Jonathan Demme, Silence of the Lambs. Best Picture, Silence of the Lambs. I can't remember how many years it had been since a a film had swept the four major categories. but That would have been One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975. I just, there you go. I, I'm a... Weird how I remember that sort of thing. And the only other one was, uh, it happened one night in 1934. Yeah. I swear I'm not looking it up. Okay. Do you know, has it happened since? Uh, I do not believe, I do not believe it has. I don't think so. Yeah. Well, that was the Academy Awards, but how about our own awards, which I've affectionately dubbed the Ronnies. Chad, what is your choice for the best supporting actress from a touchstone film in 1991? Well, this one was a hard, hard choice because... We've, we've said it before on previous Ronnie Awards. You know, Touchdown doesn't have a good track record so far of strong female roles. And I just want to point out real quick, too, that in 1991, the queen of Touchdown was nominated for Best Actress uh, for, for the Boys, a non-Touchdown film. But I just she's the queen of uh, Touchdown, so just throwing it out there. Sure. Uh, for, but for supporting actors, for my vote for the Ronnie, I'm giving it to Diane Keaton for Father of the Bride, just because, again, kind of lack of competition that I could huh. really remember. So, Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I liked her. I just didn't think she was in it enough. I, I was really hoping yeah. there would have been more. Yeah, yeah I mean, she's, she's getting the um, Judy Dench Shakespeare in Love supporting Ronnie for basically <laughs> showing up for one day of work and, and taking home the, the award. Yeah, but she's so good, though, right? Like, she just, she's really so charming and she's so warm. That smile, you can never go wrong. It's always fun to see her on screen. And she did, she was good in that movie. I've been acting so crazy since the moment Annie told you she was getting married. No, I haven't been acting crazy. I've simply acted like any normal, red-blooded American dad. Normal? Uh-huh. Okay. Falling in the Mackenzie's pool. Suggesting the steak pit as a wedding reception. Oh, watching America's Most Wanted every night, looking for Brian's face. And now this picnic I... scenario. George, a wedding is a big deal. Everybody seems to understand this but you. And as a matter of fact, n- now don't go nuts when I tell you this. But when Brian's mom called with her list, she suggested that they might just want to pitch in and help with the cost of the wedding. You know, hey, we may not have a house the size of Rhode Island, but we're not poverty stricken. We can certainly afford to give our daughter a proper wedding. Proper. Not you in a chef's hat, right, George? Who said anything about a chef's hat? When did this come? Yes, but I know you. I'm close. So what's your pick then? Well, my choice for Best Supporting Actress was Elizabeth Perkins in The Doctor. Hmm. And I mean, I really thought it was just, I mean, it was a solid supporting role. You know, that, the character that she plays has her own journey in the film, but it also gives William Hurt's character a chance to have a sense of empathy. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I feel like we're supposed to focus on his plight, but yet I, I don't know about you. I was more concerned with her and wanted to see more of the scenes of them together, you know, which I think that's the mark of a good supporting role. You know, she never really feels sorry for herself and she's excellent at laughing in the face of death. You know, we should all be as brave as that character was. Like, I don't know. I I feel like Elizabeth Perkins never really gets the respect she deserves. And I think if more people would have seen this film and were aware of her performance, she'd be a bigger name, right? I mean, she's just, you know, she was known for, you know, movies like big or the Flintstone. She had a long run on the TV series, TV series weeds, but I don't know. I I just, we see a performance like this. It makes you want to seek out some of her other movies. I'm not overly familiar with the rest of her work. Yeah. Yeah, And it's funny because I think I've seen, you know, films recently that she was in, but I, she's not a, I guess, standout actress to me. Like, like mm-hmm. I'll be watching a movie and she'll be in it. And I'm like, Oh, okay. What else has she done? I'm like, Oh, I just watched this movie recently or this movie. Like, and I, you know, I think arguably though, that is a sign of a good actor or actress is someone who doesn't stand out because I think you find them believable in each role that they embody then because sure. you're not looking at them being like, Oh, that's Elizabeth Perkins. You're like, Oh, that's an actress that or a character that I fully believe just got plucked off the street and fit into this film. Sure. No, that's, that's absolutely true. Yeah. yeah. Now, I, for honorable mention, I, 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 before I was always having like so many and you always had one. So I tried to limit <laughs> myself, even though, you know, Nicole Kidman was pretty good and Billy Bathgate. You know, Kimberly Williams was all right, Father of the Bride. But my honorable mention was actually Thora Birch in Paradise. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> no, I, uh, you know, go back and listen to that episode. Like I said, I'm, I, I'm kind of dis- kind of like Elizabeth Perkins. I'm kind of disappointed that Thora Birch hasn't become a bigger name star than she is. And, and again, I have no idea if that's her choice or Hollywood's choice or, or what, but I, I have been a big fan of Thora Birch uh, most of her career. So yeah. American beauty and ghost world are both pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have an honorable mention? I, I was debating Melanie Griffin Griffith for um, paradise just because again, looking at this list of films, there's or list you know, list of touchstone films. There's not a lot of standout 
female performances. And so I was trying to go like, okay, who was good? And I said, like, you know, going back to the Paradise episode, I was really impressed with Melanie Griffith not being Melanie Griffith. Like, I, I felt she was very subdued in her role, and it worked. But, okay. uh, you okay. know, to each their own. And that one, you know, um, I think uh, a lot of the critics didn't agree with my assessment, but oh well. So, Yeah. Okay, so I'll go. I'll move on with um, mm. my choice for best supporting actor, and I went with Stephen Hill from Billy Bathgate. Hmm. Um, I thought, you know, he pro- he provided the heart and soul to a movie that really concerns mostly nefarious character characters. You know, it almost <laughs> makes you want to be a gangster, almost, almost. You know, right? Like, you know, and I we discussed it on the episode, but the role was originally cast for John Malkovich, and I, I don't know. I'm really glad that they chose an older actor because he. He comes off as a wise old uncle instead of someone trying to be cool and glamorize the lifestyle of somebody younger, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like it's hard to get noticed when acting opposite the star power that was on display in Billy Bathgate, but yet I wanted to see more of that character. Stephen Hill was, was great. Like, he, did, he does an excellent job of playing a, a man who's clearly carrying a lot of baggage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he appreciates all of Billy's help in the film, but he really wants to be a good mentor and steer him away. And it kind of reminds you of that, that final scene they have together where he's, he's firing him because he doesn't want him to be involved anymore. And it just, yeah, Stephen Hill kind of won me over. You know why I'm firing you? Because you always want to know the reasons for things, always asking questions, always poking your nose into things that don't concern you, you, always you interrupting. And most of all, I'm sick of the sight of you. Mr. Bunny. I don't want to hear anymore, and I'll beat it. You can't fire me. I work for Mr. Schultz. Mr. Schultz does the hiring, I do the firing. Now, here's your severance pay. Get lost. What's the matter with you? Can't you get it through that thick Irish skull of yours that we don't want you? None of us. We never did. And again, I think it goes back to that understated role. He's not chewing scenery. He's not being glamorous in the role. He's just this guy that is believable as the character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A, re- a real person too, by the way. Yeah. Based on a real person. Yeah. yeah. Well, I went, um, again, I didn't realize that uh, paradise would come up so much in this, in this discussion, but I went with Don Johnson just, and I think it's going back to that, that feeling of playing against expectation. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I think he plays the father, uh, you know, suffering from losing a child and his marriage kind of being on the rocks, he he undersells the 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 uh, tragedy of the role in a way that I was not expecting. You know, I was expecting Sonny Crockett or Nash Bridges, or and he's not that. So huh, okay, yeah. So I just and and I figured I probably not going to get a chance to honor Don Johnson again. So much like the Oscars. I give him a, a make good award. <laughs> All right. Yeah, no, I agree. He was, he was, he was decent. He was decent in that movie. Did you have an honorable mentions for supporting actor? I do not. Yeah. I mean, mm. I thought, I thought Bruce Willis was, was good. And Billy mm. Bathgate, I, I enjoyed Frank Langella in true identity, but yeah. my honorable mention was Tim Curry in Oscar. Mm. Okay. I Cause I thought that, like yeah. he, he, he steals every scene that he's in. It feels like the movie take goes to another level when he shows up. I really liked him. Now, a lot in that, yeah. Real quick, because we didn't mention it on the episode of with Billy Bathgate, but um, Bruce Willis is not in any of the promotional material. His name's not on the poster. It's not on the 
you know, um, on the video cassette cover or DVD. Do you think that was because he had such a limited role or? Yeah, I wonder. You know. I mean, because it was a big name. Like yeah. Lauren Dean's hardly in any, you know, in any yeah. of the promotional materials. And he's Billy Babcake. So, <laughs> but yeah, I wonder. I, I, I've not read anything into that. I, yeah. I, I didn't I didn't notice that. But interesting point. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, moving on, Chad, do you have a, what is your choice for the best actress of 1991? Uh, best actress, a, a actress that, you know, I, I first uh, was enamored with and amused by in the movie Airplane. I went with Julie Haggerty for what about Bob? Oh, just wow. because okay. I thought, you know, playing kind of the straight woman to the shenanigans that go on. And what about Bob? I thought Julie Haggerty, and again, she's an actress that I know I've seen in other things, but she never comes off as, as overbearing or, and, and I mean, she, she kind of comes off as the same and everything, but I just thought she worked well. That worked well with, uh, her character and what about Bob? Yeah, I mean, I liked her. I mean, I, I've obviously expressed my thoughts yeah. about the feeling of the, uh, about that movie, but um, I did like Julie Haggerty, and I just recently watched uh, one of the Touchstone movies from 1992 that Julie Haggerty's in, and she's always pretty good. Yeah. yeah. So, oh well, good choice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my choice for best actress. Well, it was the last time we're going to get to talk about her. Probably, I went with Bette Midler in Scenes from a Mall. Ooh. And I know that we've mentioned it before. It was another underwhelming year for lead female roles in these Touchstone films. But leave it to the queen of Touchstone to turn in one last great performance on her way out the door. Um, I like how, you know, the movie was told in real time. And yet it seems like Bette's character goes through significant changes in the course of one afternoon. Like she she plays the jilted wife with these trademark exaggerations. But then she just masterfully switches back to this woman in control when she has to re- reveal her own transgressions, you know, she's sympathetic and unsympathetic, which I think that's really hard to do. And I'll give her credit for that. You know, the movie itself may have been disappointing, but I think that did the best she could with what she was given. And I, I really think hers was easily the better of the two lead performances between her and Woody Allen. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I can see that. And yeah, I, I think, you know, much like the Oscar voters don't tend to, uh, award movies that come out early in the year. Although in 1991, I believe <laughs> silence of the lands came out in like February or March. Yeah. February, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I can, and maybe it's just because I wasn't that fond of the movie, but I completely forgot about scenes from the mall when I was making my selections, but, but I, I don't, I, I wasn't, um, as enthralled. I, I would say that probably scenes from the mall is probably one of Bette Midler's weaker touchstone performances. Really? Um, I was just going to say, yeah, of the, of the seven touchstone films that yeah. she did, I was thinking like, you know, Stella was the sort of over-the-top melodramatic mm. one. I mean, she's really funny in big business and ruthless people. But yeah. I really thought, like, this is probably one of the best acting performances she gave in yeah. any of them. Because she has a lot of, like I said, she's got a lot of range. She's got to show different sides to the same character. Whereas, you know, all the other movies, especially like Ruthless People or Down Out Beverly yeah. Hills, she's just one note. She's a very one-dimensional character in those movies. I can see that. And I think probably my appreciation for the films themselves are coloring my selections. So That's true. That's true. I, like I said, I, I, I love with these people and I love big business. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I wanted to break up with him. I, I couldn't break up with him. I, I became terribly confused. And um, I, I drifted back and forth, you know. At one time I, I tried to tell you, but you just didn't seem to be there. Nick, it's not an accident that both of us were doing the same thing at the same time. How could it be? But it started to become so painful. 
So much shame, so much guilt. The children, you. I mean, I've just been a mess. But finally, I know what I have to do. I have to end it immediately, today, right now. And that's what I'm going to do. Oh, you've helped me so much. All I want to say is I love you. And thank you. Thank you. Um, from an honorable mention standpoint, I only had the one. I mean, I guess we have we always have this discussion. You know, is it a lead or supporting role? Christine Lottie in The Doctor. Like, I don't know if that's a lead or a support. I, I think it'll be more of a support because the movie's more about him. But for honorable mention, I just had Goldie Hawn in Deceived. You know, we may have had our issues with that movie, but you know, she she was okay. You know, yeah. and again, there were only so many to choose from, right? <laughs> right. Did you have an honorable? Did you have an honorable mention uh, as well? It was Goldie Hawn, yeah, because it's just yeah. You know, I, I, and I was debating between her and Diane Keaton for. You know, there's Diane Keaton is it lead or supporting because yeah, so okay, yeah, yeah that's the same thing. Um, and then okay, so for best actor, I went back to Billy Bathgate again, and I went with Dustin Hoffman. Uh, you know, he's a legendary actor with a commanding screen presence, and I thought he easily slid into the role of a real life gangster. You know, he definitely blends the comedy and happy go lucky attitude of the Dutch Schultz character with the violent undertones of a mobster, you know, like you never know when he's about to explode. And I think it leaves you on the edge of your seat. Like, you know, it's so easy for when you're playing like this, this larger than life kind of gangster to, to have these over the top scenes, but it doesn't really have any, you know, the performance still manages to grab you. And it's really, it's really very effective. And I, I think if it wasn't for the fact that the film bombed, I really think he could have been in line for some acting awards or at least some nominations. Cause I really thought in this film, he was that good. No, I, I'm with you 100%. And, I mean, we'll talk more about Billy Bathgate, I'm sure, coming up. But, yeah, I wonder, you know, does box office performance actually affect award consideration or, you know, because, I mean, I think I'm Maybe. trying to think of when if Billy Bathgate came out. Like, would it have come out at a time when um, – you know, the people that are voting would have probably been more likely to have seen, you know, award screeners or, or uh, you know, showcases for industry people as opposed to the general public. And maybe they yeah. just didn't take to it. I don't know. I think it yeah. works both ways. I think it works the other way where if a movie can get nominations because of its box office success. But yeah. I wonder if it can be denied due to a lack of success because, I mean, Nicole, like I said, Nicole Kidman get, got a Golden Globe nomination. For it, but yeah, yeah, but that's the Golden Globes. We've that's true. We've discussed right. them in the past. Yeah. <laughs> uh, All right. Who did you have for your best actor? Uh, for my best actor, I went with William Hurt for the Doctor. Um, again, not great a, choice. Not an actor that I'm overly familiar with, so no preconceived opinions going in. And I thought he captured the um, vulnerability of you know this Doctor who is now the patient and the struggles of realizing uh one you know is this going to be a serious injury you know it's it's cancer obviously it's serious but how is it going to affect his life and kind of understanding the you know the tribulations that patients go through that he wasn't aware of uh, from the doctor side and now mm -hmm. let me kind of hijack the conversation a bit because after we reviewed the doctor i read the book that the movie is based on um and i want to get your opinion it and I, I was trying to look up to see what the doctor how the doctor was built what is in your opinion the difference between based on a true story and inspired by a true story 
Oh, God. I always assume a lot of times if it's based, then you might you're probably you might you're probably using the real names. Mm -hmm. And if it's inspired, then you're changing the names up enough so that you don't have to pay like uh, the likeness rights yeah. or whatever. Like like you and I had a, had, a, had, a fr had a friend named Adam who worked in the film industry. And for a long time, they were trying to make a movie based on the life of the boxer. I think it was Floyd Patterson or was it Sugar Ray Robinson? I always forget. It was one of the, I think it was Sugar Ray Robinson. And and but they had to like buy his life rights, and then he his family had a say in how they crafted the film. And so I'm like, if you say inspired by a story, then you don't even have to use the names as well. I get that that's just a guess. Why? 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 What? What? What prompted that question? Well, because in the book, well, in the movie, William Hurt, you know, is in his 40s. Uh, he's got a marriage that's kind of on the rocks a little bit. He's got one young son. The real-life doctor that the book is based on was in his 70s when he was diagnosed with cancer. Steady, uh, secure marriage. Three grown sons, three or I think four sons, three of which were doctors. One was a lawyer, I believe, if I remember correctly. Um, the Elizabeth Perkins character is mentioned like one time in the book, and it's just this woman that he had seen at his treatments, and they had like one conversation. Um, mm. So the movie... The doctor, the fact that, one, he's a doctor and he has cancer, that's about it, is in, as it comes to the truthfulness of the story. Um, so, I, yeah, yeah I, I was just curious because, to me, in my opinion, I was trying to see if there were, um, you know, actual uh, rules according to the academy that you have to do. And I would say, for, in my opinion, if it says based, I want it to be probably like 85% actual, mm. you know, and I can understand yeah. like sometimes you have to make one character out of multiple if, you know, depending sure. on the situation, but an inspired is like law and order type show where it's like you read a newspaper article, you see a story and then you craft your own, you know, whatever out yeah. of it. And, um, sure. Yeah. I'm trying to think of what movie, uh, recently watched that, uh, Oh, one night in Miami, the latest Amazon movie where, we talked about it where it's like, from my research, nobody knows what these guys talked about in the hotel room. So yeah. is that true or is it just a good story of these four real life characters coming together? And yeah. And that's that's the mark of good screenwriting, man. Yeah. I think that's the same way I feel about the doctors that they took this book that was like not maybe not as interesting. It's compelling to read, but they mm -hmm. made a they crafted a good movie out of it. And, you know, I think it goes without saying that William Hurt was my honorable mention. Mm -hmm for this, for this award as well. I mean, the only other person I thought of was maybe Steve Martin, but I think he was probably a little bit too annoying to be worthy of praise. <laughs> right. I don't know. Did you, did you have an honorable mention? Well, speaking of annoying, uh, I went with Bill Murray just because, uh, okay. um, I, you know, it, I think what about Bob is probably one of my favorite Bill Murray films. So I, I have to throw him in there. Okay. All right. Well, we lead up to the big one award. I'll let you go first, Chad. What is your choice for the best picture of 1991 at a touchstone? I, I have to go with What About Bob? I actually just quoted it the other day in conversation. I remember seeing it in the theater and laughing hysterically. I, yeah, I, I, I will watch this movie, not like The Goonies and Can't Buy Me Love, where if it's on TV, I have to sit down and watch it. But I, I truly enjoyed What About Bob? Okay, yeah. I mean, again, I, I was looking forward to it, and but it didn't quite live up to what I was hoping, I guess. Um, I think I'm going to shock you a little bit, or okay. maybe you weren't. I, I asked my wife to, to pick what I thought was going to be the best picture, and she got it right. 
and that of course is Oscar. Uh, you know, okay. it was a it was a movie that I I really didn't know exactly what to expect, and I, it won me over immediately. Like you know, I don't. Sylvester Stallone may not have like the perfect comic timing, but he still owned that part. And he's both believable and likable and, you know, incredible supporting cast. It's got big names and up and comers, you know, as well as legends like Don Amici and Eddie Bracken, Kirk Douglas. It's always great to see Peter Riegert. I mentioned Tim Curry, Kurtwood Smith. Plus, you get Martin Ferrero and Harry Shearer as the Fenucci brothers, and they steal every scene they're in. You know, it's got it's got a great build up and a terrific payoff at the end it's a perfectly executed farce and hmm. you know john landis was perfect did a great job of directing it especially when you hear about all the drama that took place what you know the, and the sets caught fire and you know he managed to turn out such a terrific film and more so than my obvious honorable mention which is billy bathgate i feel like oscar is the movie that i really can't wait to watch again and thankfully uh one of my wife's uh my wife's brother actually got me the blu-ray as a christmas present <laughs> So I, I'm looking forward to seeing that again. Billy Bathgate, I'll watch at some point, but Oscar, I'm, I definitely look forward to seeing again. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm surprised that if you would have asked me at the beginning of 1991, as we were discussing, you know, where Oscar would would have would Oscar wind up in the Ronnies, I probably would have said, "Are you kidding me?" Because mm-hmm. it's a movie that I only know by reputation, which is apparently kind of misconstrued. I think a lot of people probably just lump it in with. Uh, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Um, oh, yeah. Just came out around the same time. And, you know, again, Stallone doing comedy. But, yeah, I um, uh, Oscar is a very fine film that I think uh, if people have not seen it, definitely they should check it out. Absolutely. I can't, I can't recommend it enough. Okay. And then for the last award, we always like to have a little fun with this one. And that is the best soundtrack. I, yeah, I thought 1991 was kind of a down year for soundtracks really but my choice was father of the bride actually um you know it's got it's got the great you know it's got these classic songs about love and marriage you know it's got chapel of love uh, i really like the, the song by darling love called today i met the boy i'm gonna marry it seems like one of those songs i should have heard at some point in my life but i, I never think i don't think i've ever heard it until i saw the movie you know it has those standards by steve terrell we used the uh, the way you look tonight as the introductory song for that episode um, and I really like the use of my girl. There's a scene where Steve Martin and Kimberly Williams are playing basketball in the driveway and it, it goes on for a while and they use the song at length. So yeah, it, uh, I think the, 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 the music tended to put a smile on my face more than the film did, <laughs> you know? Uh, but it, it kind of made me want to be at that wedding. I don't know about you. I, I, I think it would've been kind of fun. And I, I did enjoy the music of, of, of that film. Uh, I think parking would have been terrible at that wedding. But take, I, take an Uber. No, I'm with you. Father of the Bride is my pick for best soundtrack as well, for all the reasons that you uh, more eloquently than I would have laid out. So, again, I think that wedding probably would have been, uh, you know, if Instagram and Twitter and everything would have been all social media would have been around at that time, that probably would have went viral. But that soundtrack should definitely go viral. Yeah, and from an honorable mention standpoint, the only other one I really thought of was was Oscar because I I liked that they had a use of a lot of opera music and also some more standards from the 1930s era. But otherwise, like I think we mentioned, it wasn't it wasn't really a standout year for a lot of there was a lot of it wasn't there wasn't a Pretty Woman soundtrack this year. That's mm-hmm. for that's for sure. Um, okay, and then 
I always like to end on our, we'll give our choices for the most surprising and most disappointing films of the year. Um, I think Chad's already alluded to it as well, but I'll lead off by saying my most surprising movie of the year was The Doctor. I I, I really wasn't really sure what to expect with this one. I thought it was just going to be kind of like, all right, okay, guy gets cancer, yada, yada, yada. But I, I said the acting was was great all around. It was it was neat to see the change that he goes through. You know, like I said, he, he becomes more more sympathetic to what's going on around him when he meets Elizabeth Perkins' character. I It, it was surprisingly good. Chad, what was your choice for most surprising film. Yeah. I mean, I'm with you on, I mean, I think this is the category that actually had the most um, contenders and which one I wanted to go with. Um, But I went with Billy Bathgate just because again knew nothing about it and ended up watching it twice um, due to some technical issues. And, and the second time around, I was even more engaged in the film than the first time. So Mm. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's a gangster film that, like I said, it, I, I don't think it, it doesn't follow that. It didn't feel like a standard gangster film that we're used to now. So it was a nice mm-hmm. difference and, and everything. Again, I, I do, you know, question like the middle portion when Dustin Hoffman's character goes upstate and, and, and everything. But, but as you pointed out in the show that it happened, so. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if fact it's one of those stranger than like, fiction. Yeah, and I wonder if it's one of those movies that like if this reputation precedes itself. Like mm-hmm. you hear it bomb and you hear about troubles in the set, then maybe yeah. you lower your expectations. And I mean, I was pleasantly surprised by it as well. I mean I'd seen it years ago and I liked it, but it was I was I forgot how good it was. Yeah. What cross are you talking about, Julie? I didn't dream up the protection racket so you could steal from me. You didn't me. dream up nothing! I made the rackets, I ran them for you! All right, don't raise your voice to me. I'm right here, I'm not across the street. You've been yelling at me all night. Hey, I'm the one with the baseball bats. Yeah. I'm the one who throws the stink bombs. Yeah. I'm the one who squeezed $2 million out of those restaurants last year. Me, yeah. alone. Don't you feel obliged to make it good? Don't I feel obliged to make what good? The $50,000 that Otto says you like. Otto's wrong. Otto's never Otto's wrong. wrong. He says you've been skimming, Julie. Skimming? Skimming, huh? Yeah. No, not skimming. Money that I'm entitled to. You're entitled to $50,000 worth. You're damn right He's I am. He's entitled to my $50,000. Yeah, let me tell you something, Pally. You tell me something, Pally. I get every maid of D in the city going to his knees when I walk in the door because of who I am. Got it? Let me explain something to you in plain English. <laughs> And we don't like dwell, we don't like to dwell on the negative necessarily. But Chad, did you have a choice for your most disappointing film of the year? Well, I have have two. Um, one, I'm going with Ernest Scared Stupid, just because it was the last Ernest film, and after Goes to Jail, I think I had higher expectations for an Ernest film than one probably should have. And it, it was sad to see Ernest go out with such a whimper. But my uh, biggest disappointment was Father of the Bride. You know, it's a movie that I hadn't seen mm. and talk about that reputation. I was expecting like this fun, lively comedy. And like I said, Steve Martin, Steve Martin's character kind of takes me out of that film. Uh, no, you know, I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I didn't want to be too mean, but I had the same thought about Ernest, Ernest Scared Stupid, where it's weird to say that an Ernest movie would, be, would disappoint you. <laughs> but when it follows up, Ernest Goes to Jail, which I really enjoyed. That I, I I was like I can't I just can't in good conscience put it, an earnest film at my disappointing. <laughs> I think you might might know what my my disappointing movie because it's the same thing I felt about Father the Bride was exactly how I felt about What About Bob, mm. which was a movie that I was totally I just everybody talks about it when I posted on social media that I was watching it I had people tell me oh it's so good can't wait to, you're gonna enjoy it you're gonna enjoy it and 
I, I, I was cringing through parts of it. And it just and it pains me to put that. Chad. You have to understand, I'm not trying to be so critical or negative of that film because I know a lot of people love it. But, man, I just I had a lot of issues with it. And it's it, it's disappointing in that regard. Uh, I but, think you need to go sailing. Maybe. Maybe that's exactly what I need. Uh, well, in conclusion, I will say that, you know, Touchstone in 1991, they managed to get two films in the top 20 and even one in the top 10. Even though I'm not sure they were worthy, you know, they had some pleasant surprises. But all in all, it was a it was a so so year. You know, we get we get these wonderfully acted dramas that were compelling, you know, with movies like The Doctor and Billy Bathgate. We get an Oscar. We get a great farce. You know, we get a likable film. I thought of likable film and true identity. But, you know, we also arguably get the worst earnest film. We get some boring moments in movies like scenes from a mall and paradise. You know, it was nice to see a thriller, even if the scene was a little far fetched <laughs> at times. And then we had, you know, the divisiveness of what about Bob and father, of the bride, you know, even though I, I think that's good, you know, it's, it brings about debate and it shows people are passionate about movies. I, I, I think I'll enjoy father of the bride more on a second viewing more so than what about Bob, but that's, that's just me. Um, so, we want to take a little bit of a break. I mean, not a break in the show, but I want to something I've talked about with Chad off the air is we're going to do a slight reformat. And it is I wanted to get back to what I started the podcast out with. And I think 1991 is a perfect chance to end and then start a new going into 1992, because 1991 is it's kind of a watershed moment for the Disney studios. As I mentioned, Hollywood Pictures and Walt Disney Pictures themselves start to ramp up their productions. And I noticed, you know, Touchstone launched in 1984. They released two films that year, and Disney didn't put out any movies that year. And so the first eight years of this podcast that Chad and I have discussed, 1984 through 1991, Touchstone released 57 films, while Disney only released 19. So there was more to talk about, you know, we have three times as many movies, and there were a lot of movies that we had fond memories of, and that's kind of what, what inspired us to do it. But with 1991, we see... Disney releases five movies in a year. And it was the first time they'd done that in, in 10 years. And from this point moving forward, they will never again release less than five movies in a year. Uh, for the next five years, 1992 to 1996, I mentioned Disney doesn't put out any less than five. Hollywood Pictures doesn't put out any less than 10 in any given year, whereas Touchstone doesn't put out more than 10. And, and, and a couple of years, including 1992, they only put out six movies. And that's kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to do this reformat, because in 1992, there's six touchstone films. I didn't want to just do three episodes and be done with it. There's so much more richness to kind of go into. And it's because this entire studio is really picking up. They, it's the most productive time in their history. You know, between 1993 and 1996, the three studios combined to release between 27 and 33 movies each year. So we're, I feel like there's so much more to talk about. And it kind of gets back to what I was saying before, like what else was Disney doing while they had the touchstone banner, you know, and on a, on a personal level, I've we talked about it on the show and Chad just mentioned it, but 1992, Chad was graduated from high school. I was a junior. I graduated in 1993. And so I feel like we're going to be coming across a lot more movies that we either saw in a theater or we remember them being released because we saw a trailer before another film we saw. You know, at that time, 1982, I just got a driver's license. I was yearning to get out of the house. I was going to a lot more movies. And I don't know about you. I was going to ask you, Chad. I feel like I'm more nostalgic about these 90s films than I am excited about new releases. 
You know, it's, it feels like it brings back a lot of great memories. Even if, you know, even if, even if it's a film that I didn't see, I still feel like I can relate based on the music that's in the soundtrack or the way the characters were dressed. You know, it just seems like there were, there were more movie stars and character actors back in this early part of the 90s, as well as just more movies from more studios. What do you think? No, I'm with you. And I think it, you know, it also goes into part of why the, this podcast was started after, you know, you watched Sister Act and, and had the memory of, touch, of of Touchstone. And that is you have movies and, and you know, we were discussing this prior to recording this episode. And so, listener, when we get into 92, you'll you'll see how we talk about these films. But there's such a wide variety of the type of film that is being released, you know, through these years. And as opposed to today, where everything seems so homogenized and very similar because you're trying to attract the biggest audience, you know, looking again, looking at. 1992 and and for that matter 1991 you know each movie kind of has its own specific target audience and and so i think that's the other great aspect of of going back and and watching these films is one yeah i have the nostalgia for the films that i saw either in the theater or on video shortly after and then there are movies that didn't appeal to me as a teenager Mm. That now I want to okay. go back, you know, like, for example, The Doctor and Billy Bathgate. Yeah, I wasn't exactly. going to watch those when I was in high school. But now having a different uh, maturity and mentality, I can go back and be like, wow, these were really good films that, you know, probably got overlooked due to, you know, whatever reason. But yeah, so I think it's just opening, um, opening that mindset to to discover new old films. Yeah. And I, again, I, the funny part is we would have been a target audience for some of these movies and we never saw them. And I wonder if we were to blame. Right. You know, like and now we get a chance to, like I said, to re to reintroduce ourselves to them at an older age where maybe we can appreciate them. You know, and I also by looking across all three studios between Touchstone Hollywood and Disney, we're going to get a sense of what their development teams were coming up with around the same time. And I also one of my favorite parts of Out of Touchstone is I like seeing the connections like when an actor or a writer or director returns to the studio, you know, not necessarily Richard Dreyfuss and Bette Midler, because, you know, they were under contract for, you know, but it, but it, I don't know. It's neat to see the relationships that the Disney executives would have had with this talent, you know, and I, especially when you look at the connections between the films that came out in the studios. And I wanted to point this out before we before we go is you know, in 1991 alone, like if you look at the four films that Hollywood Pictures put out, OK, the first one was Run. And that the director was a guy named Jeff Burroughs. He had directed Return to Snowy River for Disney. The two screenwriters of Run, which were the pair of Shryak and Blodgett, they were two of the five writers who wrote Turner and Hooch. And then you have Patrick Dempsey, who had been in Can't Buy Me Love a few years earlier. The Marrying Man, that was directed by Jerry Reese, who had worked in the animation and art department at Disney. He'd done Fox and the Hound, Tron, Black Cauldron. And then some of the actors, Elizabeth Shue, she had just been in Adventures in Babysitting, and Fisher Stevens was in My Science Project. One Good Cop was written and directed by Haywood Gould. He was the writer of Cocktail. Renee Russo was in that movie. She had just been in Mr. Destiny the year before. And we also had Anthony LaPaglia, who had been in Betsy's Wedding in 1990 for Touchstone. And then finally, V.I. Warshawski, that was directed by Jeff Canoe, who had directed Tough Guys, he was the original director of Dead Poets Society. The screenwriter of V.L. Warshawski was Nick Thiel. 
He had written Firebirds, Shipwrecked, and White Fang. Kathleen Turner was the star. She had just been the, the voice of Jessica Rabbit in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. The, Charles Durning plays a cop in the movie. He was a cop in Tough Guys and Dick Tracy. So there's just so much. And even if you look at the Disney films, you know, Ethan Hawke was in White Fang and Dylan Kusman was in Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken. They had just been uh, schoolmates and Dead Poets Society. So I, I want to see how this all plays in to what's moving, what moves forward from 1992 and on. And I wanted to end this particular episode with something, I, I guess I could have alluded to it earlier in 1991, but it was an infamous memo that Jeffrey Katzenberg had come up with and presented to fellow Disney executives. Uh, Chad found a, a link to, to read the whole thing. It's fascinating. It's about 28, 27 pages long, and, but it reads very well. I heard supposedly it was based on a memo that Michael Eisner had sent to Paramount executives when he worked there back in, in, in 1981 after uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark had come out and they were uh, feasting on the success of that film. But it, it sort of alludes to just this idea of trying to take a greater investment into story and into ideas. And I, I'm not going to go into specifics of it, but that, there was a few quotes that I want to pull up when the, uh, from that memo in particular, but it's this idea of they wanted to attract good talent, but also try to keep costs down because Katzenberg was the one who was warning everybody about this, what he called the blockbuster mentality. And everyone was so concerned with the um, opening weekend and making all the money on the opening weekend. And so something that I guess Eisner had alluded to in his time at Paramount was this idea of trying to make what they called singles and doubles rather than home runs, because then it's like, they may not make as much, but they also won't lose as much. And so I did want to, there's a couple of quotes that really struck me. This is from the Jeffrey Katzenberg memo that he released early in 1991. Uh, the first one says, quote, if the idea and story are strong enough, a movie shouldn't be dependent on any particular performer to be a success. This is why we should be aggressive on all fronts at the bargaining table with major stars at the comedy club searching for future stars and at the back door of the clinic, picking up the stars that once were and can be again, end quote. And that's in uh, reference to, there was a, a quote that Robin Williams said that, that uh, Touchstone was just sitting outside the Betty Ford clinic looking for people that were on their way out because because they had taken Bette Midler and Richard Dreyfuss and kind of they had been down in their careers and they brought them back. But um, it's also kind of alluding to what I talked about was this idea of trying to find talent but not give them too much pressure. The second quote I have says, quote, we should provide a place where talent has the right to fail. By making long-term arrangements with talent we believe in, we can control costs while they gain the security that's necessary for taking creative risks and going in new directions. As the blockbuster mentality rages around us, this can be a place that talent can go to be relieved of the pressure of having to try to make the next Batman, end quote. And that was, of course, 1989's Batman was such a huge box office success. So, I mean, Chad, you had time to read the memo. Was there anything mm. that struck you? Or is there anything that kind of inspires you as we move forward with the next batch of Disney films? Well, I mean, to kind of piggyback off of that memo, I found a article that stated in 1991, movie attendance was the worst in 15 years. And mm. the summer season was the worst in 23 with 40% of Americans reporting that they didn't see a single film in the course of a year, a higher percentage than ever. And that just, you know, that kind of boggles my mind that, um, you know, I mean, people don't go out and see a movie because, you know, I, I would have thought, and maybe being, you know, cinephiles like we are, or 
being teenagers at this time, like you go to the theater on the weekends and, and especially with the, the product that was being put out at that time being more, you know, your romantic comedies or your, um, your teen films and, and whatnot, your date night films. But I just, um, I, I found that Katzenberg memo to be very interesting for the fact that even though it was written in 1991, you could have told me that that came out of any studio executive's office in 2021. Because, sure. And unfortunately, you know, what Katzenberg is saying is instead of heeding that advice and going in the direction that he was kind of pointing, all the studios have gone in the opposite direction and and are making, you know, the bigger budget films. And, and yeah, you have smaller films and, and probably due to streaming and, uh, you know, the death of the video rental uh, store that these smaller films aren't getting the traction or the attention that they deserve or need. Mm-hmm. And everything is just going for opening weekend, big blockbuster, and then the next weekend because – the other thing is the the amount of movies that are coming out. You know, now it just seems like every yeah. movie steps on the toes of the next big. You know, every weekend there is a new movie coming out that is a huge. It should be a huge blockbuster instead of just the summer season or her. You know, so I think. I mean, it's a topic I think you and I have discussed many times. I would like to see a scale back and going back to smaller films that don't have to make two, $300 million to recoup a budget. Don't give actors $20 million for a movie that may only make five at the box office, you know, put it, give them the back end deals to, if the movie succeeds, then they succeed. But yeah, uh, I mean, he's in the memo. He does. He talks about like the disparity between the big budget and the small budget films that are being done at the same studio mm -hmm. and how the big budget films take away a lot of the resources from those smaller films. I like that. Like, he talks about one of the reasons the Hollywood pictures kind of came to be is that they wanted to have more of a market share and they could fill these multiplexes with options, giving the, giving the consumer more options, you know? And I, I like that. And he also, what I thought was interesting too, is, you know, he, he talked about not just the business, but he goes on this whole big thing about Dick Tracy and how he complained that that movie didn't have enough legs in the box office because he felt that the main character didn't go through a transformation. Hmm. Like he never had to confront any demons or resolve anything. Everything remains completely static and nothing elemental changes. And I'm like, that's a very good point because it's just at the end of the movie, he's the same Dick Tracy's the exact same character that he is at the beginning. And he still can't, hmm. he still can't propose to his girlfriend, you know? And I, I thought, so, so he talks a lot about how they want to just try to get these writers under contract, even though the, spec script market is very lucrative but he wants to convince them that if you're with the disney brand you can grow with the studios he also talks about how like there shouldn't be kids movies and adult movies there should just be family movies which are films that can be shared individually by the family like the parents can enjoy them without the kids around and and vice versa and so yeah it's as we go into 1992 you and i talk about how we try not to be overly critical or negative but let's face it we're going to come across a lot of bombs yeah. And that's just that's just the nature of the business. And I, I want to end with this last quote from the memo, which I think should sort of guide us as we move forward with this podcast and also as we examine the Disney brand with their future film output. And here it is, quote, we've become big enough and successful enough that no one movie can be the difference between profitability and unprofitability for our studio. If we are to achieve greater success, we must be creative. If we are to be creative, we must risk failure. Therefore, to succeed, we must occasionally fail, and sometimes not so occasionally. 
Pretty Woman came on the heels of five consecutive failures. In the scheme of running this movie studio, those five failures were necessary for that one extraordinary success, and they were worth it. If we remain intelligent about our projects and exercise good taste, then the failures will remain manageable, and we will continue to be successful, end quote. So let's see what's going to come moving forward. So starting with uh, our next episode, what we're going to do is we're going to discuss one touchstone film per episode and then spend the second half discussing some similarly themed touched uh, Hollywood pictures and Disney films that were released or in development around the same time, maybe released around the same time to show what would have been going on at the studio and how they can compare. But I do want to put a lot of emphasis on the specific touchstone films, and that's what we're going to be highlighting, looking at from there. So starting up. Uh, next, with our first touch on film in 1992, we get another farce from a famed director, which features a terrific ensemble cast. What movie is that? Well, you know what? You're just going to have to tune in next time to find out. Again, my name is Mike DeKalb. You can find me on Twitter at Mike DeKalb. I also run the Out of Touchstone Twitter account, which is at Out of Touchstone. You want to shoot me an email? It's out of touchstone at gmail.com. Uh, my co-host, Chad Smart, you can find him on Twitter, at Chad Smart. He's also the proprietor of the Positive Cynicism Podcasting Network, hashtag PCPN. Uh, Chad, you have any final thoughts before we embark on this new endeavor? Uh, you know, it's been a great eight years so far, looking at, at Touchstone. Um, 1992, we were just talking about discovering new films. There's a lot in there that I haven't seen, and I... It's an interesting, again, I'm I'm looking forward to, even though the focus is going to be Touchstone, looking at the other films that Disney's, you know, parent company is putting out and with Hollywood, just to see, you know, kind of understand the, the film business a little bit better. Yeah, exactly. Especially in that, in that time when there would have been so much product on the market and filling up VHL's rental shelves and all that so uh once again for chad i am mike this is out of touchstone and we are out of time out of touchstone is a honey nerds production for more information visit outoftouchstone.com like and subscribe on itunes podbean or wherever you find your podcasts thanks for listening So, you're cool, I'm cool, we're cool, thank you, good night.